It's the Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you as always. Jerry, you seem very peppy today. I am very peppy. I've had about six cups of coffee. And I have not had any coffee. I know. I this, this is something I didn't know about you, Steve, that you have never had a cup of coffee before in your life. Never had a cup of coffee. I wonder if we're going to lose listeners because they're so <laughs> horrified that I've never had a cup of coffee in my life. All the coffee achievers are going to bow out. Maybe, maybe. Have you never, like, act, somebody said, hey, you feeling tired? Why don't you have this? And you're like, no. Never a sip. Hmm. Never. I have an addictive personality. Okay. So I'm afraid if I try it, I'm going to really like it. Yeah, but it's not crack, Steve. It's just coffee. <laughs> it is crack. Have you ever seen the lines outside of Dunkin' Donuts? People are crazy. You're not going to lose your house because you drink too much coffee. All I want is a donut and people go crazy knocking you over for their car. Co- <laughs> I got to get coffee. I got to get coffee. It's crazy. Okay. Maybe you're addicted to donuts though. <laughs> well, that's a problem. That's a problem. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are at The Rush Cast. Email Jerry. Complain to him. About your coffee consumption? <laughs> <laughs> about my coffee consumption at the at gmail.com or my lack of coffee consumption. I should say true. Yes. Yeah. The base intro and outro Lex. I don't know if he's a coffee drinker. See, I don't know these things about my friends. Well, you should ask him. We'll have next, to ask him next episode. We'll have to update everyone on Lex's coffee consumption. Yes. So Jared, I've got another Twitter poll for you. This is two episodes oh, in a row. Nice. Very exciting. Good thing. I never pay attention to our Twitter feed. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about snakes and arrows not too long ago. Yep. This is our second snakes and arrows Twitter poll. Spindrift, the main monkey business, the way the wind blows, and Faithless. Which of those songs did the Rush fans prefer? Mm, that's actually a, kind of a tough one. That's a really tough one. I was surprised by the outcome. Oh, then it's probably the main monkey business. How did you know? <laughs> is it really? It is. Yeah. See, if you hadn't said that, I would have said the way the wind blows. So, 38% said the main monkey business. 26% said faithless. Hmm. 23% the way the wind blows. And Spindrift, surprisingly, came in last out of those four choices 13%. Huh. Interesting, right? What about an email, Jared? It's the email section of our show. I know. This is like a regular segment. We still have, I got an email the other day saying, hey, you haven't named your email segment. We've dropped the ball. What can I tell you? I know. Let's just go with Jerry reads an email. All right, let's do it. Read an email, Jerry. So this is from David. What's up, David? It says, it was with much trepidation that I decided to listen to your podcast. Now there's a way to start an email. (laughs) How's that, right? (laughs) I didn't know what to expect from the rest of this email. (laughs) After trying a few Rush podcasts and giving up after five minutes because the individuals hosting it thought they were comedians, I nervously hit play on one of your episodes. I was delighted to hear two Rush fans simply discussing their music with a passion and attention to detail that only a true Rush fan can have. Wow. We're true Rush fans. Look at that. Finally. I guess so. I'm glad he doesn't think we're comedians either. Because we're not. Even though we were trying to say funny (laughs) things this whole time and it's not funny. He says, my journey into Rush geekdom began in 1977 when I saw the words Rush drawn on Mike DeLuca's school notebook in grade seven woodworking class. Who's Rush? I asked. You don't know who Rush is? He replied. 
He went on to fill me in and told me their new album just came out. The next day, I skipped school and made the walk to Music World and bought A Farewell to Kings. I put the needle down and listened. Once the classical guitar intro ended and the full band kicked in, I was floored. I had never heard anything like it in my life. The time signatures twisted my 13-year-old brain. The drumming, the vocals, the guitar playing, it sounded alien. I began to investigate their back catalog, but the true epiphanic moment was when I got hemispheres for my next birthday. When the Lifeson chord came crashing through the speaker, I got tunnel vision. It sounded like gods playing on a mountaintop. And that was it. I was hooked for life. I was thankful to have seen them on the R40 tour in Toronto. I had no plans to go, but at the last moment, I told my wife, I think this may be my last chance. So off I went on my own. Words can't describe how incredible the show was. And I was right. That was the end. Anyway, sorry to be so verbose. Thanks for providing your fellow Rush geeks with hours of entertainment, David. Thanks, David. That was great. I'm glad we made the cut. And thanks to Mike DeLuca for turning him on to Rush, right? <laughs> How many people have Mike DeLuca turned on to Rush? So many. Yeah, he's a great advocate <laughs> for Rush fans. I think Mike DeLuca is going to love today's episode because we've got a guest today, Jared, that I've, I've been hoping to have on since we started this. Yes. We talked about this from the beginning. Master violinist. He played in the Clockwork Angels String Ensemble on tour with Rush also performed with Rush on the R40 tour, doing Losing It. And he's also performed on Broadway for years, including his lead violinist for Hamilton, Jonathan Dinklage. Welcome to the Rush FanCast. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. We appreciate you joining us. We'd like to start out, Johnny, by asking our guests their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan? The second part of that question is easy. The answer is instantly. <laughs> um, you know, it was one of those things where I was, you know, a fourth or fifth grader and luckily somebody had an older brother. I had a buddy of mine who had an older brother who was in high school. So he was already able to go out and buy records. And I heard, um, farewell to Kings. That was the first thing. And before I even heard the record, I was looking at the album cover. So, you know, that's that, that whole era where you know, the album cover is just as intriguing as the music. And, you know, I remember just being in this guy's bedroom and he, he put it on his record player. And it was, uh, it was one of those things that happens a couple times in life where you're like, what, what am I feeling? I'm in fourth grade and I'm going crazy. Right. I was already a musician for a year and I was already into music, but it, it's like when that stuff shows up after you already have an interest in music, you just you're you're enamored immediately with the whole the feeling not only the music itself but the feeling it gives you the nostalgia it's like it's it's a complex pile of emotions but they all kind of hit it once before you're able to even put them in order and then then it's like you know then you find out there's other albums uh, you know already and you, you know you just you go get them or you find out and with every album, you, you just go deeper in. And so that was pretty much it. I mean, since fourth, I would say fourth or fifth grade. And then by, you know, eighth grade, it was full in, you know. And Farewell the Kings is a pretty, um, how, do, how do we say that's a, you know, that's a challenging album for a fourth grader, don't you think? I think so. But I, I mean, the weird thing about growing up in the 70s is luckily my parents had a pretty eclectic 
spectrum of music that they would listen to. So I don't think that, I think that something like Rush or Yes or Genesis, um, anything kind of in that spectrum was kind of easier for me to grab. And I know that there are like separate groups of friends, you know, there's the guys who are into the real prog rock stuff. And then there's the guys who are just into the straight ahead rock stuff. And then there's the guys who cross over and then, you know, you know, men and women, like at that age, they don't, you know, you're kind of compiling what you're into. And, but for me, it was, it wasn't weird at first. It was just like completely the goosebumps started. And that's like the measure of whatever it is, the goosebumps start pretty quickly and, and then you're in, you know? So how does a young Rush fan gravitate toward the violin, Jonathan? Well, the weird thing is I, I, um, I started the violin in third grade. So I was already deeply into classical and practicing. I was like that weird kid that got into it pretty quickly, pretty intensely right away. And I actually, I, at the risk of sounding, you know, kind of cocky, I had this experience with my colleagues. It's like everybody starts in third grade and you start with, you know, 12 or 20 kids. And in the first day, you kind of can see who can't do it. And then, you know, by by sixth grade, I'm the only, per, you know, then the next year there's five people. And then by sixth grade, I'm the only dude uh, with the violin and I'm sitting in the flute section because there's not enough people that kept with it. That's a common experience. And But the truth is that people with the violin, because it's such a hard, weird thing, you kind of either it kind of grabs you right away or then, or you're just going to suffer, you know? And that's the hard thing about teaching violin too. You know, you can tell pretty much right away who's going to not be able to pull it off. <laughs> it's terrible because, you know, as I used to teach a lot and you're like, Oh man, this poor kid who loves it so much. Well, this does not have it. And then the kid <laughs> who could care less does have it, you know? So anyway, I, I, I don't know if that, deviated too far from your question but i was already into music but i was also into rock and roll you know since i'm really little with the zeppelin beatles and jazz and my parents were like i said before pretty eclectic listeners so i stuck with the violin but i always was a i always wanted to learn you know guitar solos on the violin so <laughs> and, and how did your career progress from there did you go to music school i did yeah i I didn't know if I, when, when the time came to go to college, I was kind of like, eh, I don't know. I, I, it's a whole bunch. It's a big world. I kind of want to go to a regular college. I auditioned at conservatories and luckily I worked hard enough to get in. But then Rutgers University in New Jersey was kind of more appealing. It was, I was going to go to a, a, a big regular college, yet, yet they had a great teacher. They had a great fac music faculty, a very small music school. And it kind of just evolved. It wasn't, there wasn't really a plan. You know, I just kept playing and all of a sudden I found myself kind of doing it uh, without really, you know, a plan set, set forth. So over the years you performed with many big artists, Rod Stewart, Michael Jackson, Barbara Streisand, Tony Bennett, and Lady Gaga. Yeah. How does your career progress to the point where you get your break working with Rush? Oh, I mean, the great, Thing about this whole thing is I've always wanted to be even though I'm a violinist I never wanted to be a classical soloist or a, I didn't audition for symphonies I just kind of I, I always wanted to be a studio player I didn't even know what that meant as a kid but 
meanwhile there's a lot of great albums being recorded while i was a kid and i just knew i wanted to be in the studios so i i kind of had a connection with a composer who was a jingle composer and, and that's how i kind of got involved with all that pop stuff all those records i mean i played on a lot of records and i've done a lot of tours and so that's the greatest part is being able to do that and then once in a while i mean lady gaga is an exceptional woman and an exceptional artist but you know i didn't grow up listening to her so you know all these gigs are fun and and they they vary in style and everything but then you get a call from someone who's putting together a string ensemble and then they tell you it's rush and <laughs> you know that's when you flip out because you know and i didn't it wasn't very long before i told the guys in the band that i was a giant fan you know it, it, i couldn't well, i couldn't hold it in first of all right. you know the first rehearsal half of the string players didn't even know who rush was and not that they didn't know who they were but they weren't fans or they didn't know their music and you know they they start a sound check with subdivisions and i'm i'm I, you know i'm just like I'm a fan, so I'm <laughs> shaking. I'm literally shaking. The other funny part is I have a colleague of mine, Encho Todorov, who's a, one of my favorite violinists, who was also on a Clockwork Angels tour with me. He was my stand partner and also a very close friend of mine. He's from Bulgaria, an amazing violinist, and, and he got the tour. He got the question as well, would you like to go on this tour? And he called me and he's like, what is this rush? <laughs> and I'm like, I was like, dude, what? you're going to do it? And he, he said, do I need to leave my house? And then, you know, he, I, he, he's not going to be pissed about my imitation because, you know, he, he knows that I do it. And, and I said, okay, so listen to me. You're going on this tour. Just, I don't care what gigs you have. I don't care what you're doing. You have to come with me on this tour. This is that this will never happen again. This is and he was like, this sounds crazy. <laughs> and it was and then ultimately, you know, of course, he got very close to the, the guys in Rush too. They you know, everybody became pretty bonded on that tour. And but he specifically, because uh, we're so close, developed a, a deep, deep love for the music and their musicianship. And it was fun to watch it evolve. I mean, it was fun to watch him hear these songs for the first time and, and kind of, you know, and freak out at the right moments and kind of freak out. And, you know, sitting 10 feet behind or 15 feet behind, you know, it's like the first time you hear it, you're, you, you, you can't believe what you're hearing, you know? Right. Well, that's the long-winded way of saying it's probably like the pinnacle, certainly for me, the pinnacle, although I've worked a lot, thankfully, when, when those things come along where you get to play with people you really adore, it's exceptional. And I'm assuming that you maintained your fandom throughout all of Rush albums? 100%. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't, I hope they don't get too mad, but I, I lost them a little bit, but it's in like the mid-90s, but that's only because life kind of went a different direction it wasn't as if i lost them it was or the records i wasn't as exposed to it i wasn't as exposed to the music at that point and i was doing a lot of classical practicing and it it, it was less about the the transition in their 
in their focus or their musical kind of direction. It was more just about like, you know, the, a different direction for me. That's all. Right. But like, to come, I mean, every single thing they play, every record is exciting, everything, you know, and they know when, they, you know, everybody's, nobody can be exceptional consistently all the time, but they're, they come close. <laughs> they do, right? They do come close. Steve and I, we were talking about that the other day. We were interviewing somebody. It's just like, man, that's a lot of albums to be so good, like nearly 100% great on every single album for yes. 19 albums. Oh, it's, it's, it's really like, I mean, there really is a thing about them that there really is only the consistency and the, the level. A lot of the, a lot of artists have, experienced you know so many changes in or deaths or i mean early deaths you know younger deaths yeah. and, and they weren't able to continue or who knows how prolific they would have been but basically just like rush and i don't know who 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 right that we talk about that too who like i i <laughs> I, I have one other band in my i mean especially when it comes to members like the unit uh, there's a lot of bands that went through, you know, different personnel and mm -hmm. always exciting. But Rush is really the only ones that crossed over a couple generations of listeners and never faltered and never and always could go out and play to 20,000 people because yeah. there's no way no, that, that it, they wouldn't sell tickets. Right. For me, it's always been the thought that because you know, we started listening, I started getting into them, uh, Power Windows, and to go back and then go forward, it's like, wow, these, these guys, they'll try anything. <laughs> they'll literally try anything, and I don't know if that's the secret to them, it working all of the time, is that they're endlessly just striving? Yes, for sure. I mean, I love, I mean, Grace Under Pressure is one of my favorite records, and that was when, like, to me, that was when the synths really kind of powered through, but there was, what's amazing is that according to them, you know, that, you know, at first Alex Lifeson might've been a little bit wary of the amount of synthesizer stuff and that, you know, that tr transition is very difficult and certainly technically difficult. But what's incredible to me is the, the soundscape that Alex continued to create around those transitions. Yeah, uh, like he he might have complained a little bit at first, but I think he's one of the most underrated guitar players of all time in terms of like the lists, because no one can kind of capture the soundscape of that much music like he has as a guitar player. So right, I don't know, that that's my uh, another tangent, but this is one of the mysteries of Rush. You know, that it's the same guys. You know. Right. A lot of guitar players might have been like, all right, go do your album. And get the <laughs> but not only did he, did they go forward together, but they created this new thing together. And they were always, you know, and then Neil got into the electronics just, just at the same time. And it just seems like, it just seems like the perfect band to cross over generations, you know? Yeah. We've talked a couple of times with different people about, what other band has had the type of career that rush has and like rock band that is and you're hard pressed to come up with another one i mean the no no AC, AC, i mean See, AC, we i say acdc because AC, they put out the only one i can think of 
but they not to slag ACDC because I love ACDC, but they've oh, been putting too. out the same album since 1980. Absolutely. So it's not the same exact thing. It's not the same exact thing. I, although I'm with you on ACDC, like to me, like shoot to thrill is, <laughs> I basically can listen to it every morning. Right. You know, it's never, it's never gets old, but yeah, I don't know. Really interesting this is why I just love them so much. I love them. I've always loved them. Always will love them. Um, now that I know them, it's even more intense. But it doesn't take away from my fandom. You know, it's still I'm still a giant fan, and certainly saddened. The last year has been sad in 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 I don't know every way. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean. So when you got that call, Johnny. Who was it that made that call? Was that David Campbell, the conductor of the string ensemble? Well, the funny thing is, I th this is how it went. Yes. I mean, not directly. David Campbell used a contractor who happens to be a friend of mine who called me. Um, but I had done a record, and Show and I had done a record with Nick Raskalinitz from, mm -hmm. you know, the producer. And it was for another artist. And we hit it off and we had a great time and it was a great session. It was kind of a smaller string session. So myself and Encho and Nick went out for beers afterwards. And, you know, it, we didn't develop like a, we're not still in touch, but there was definitely kind of an understanding of, he was like, well, he must've been like, oh, these dudes. Encho and I were the only East Coasters to go on that tour. So somehow through yammering and to our benefit, or kind of like, hey, this dude's cool. This guy's cool. Uh, we got we got called. So that's that's exceptional because I know that, you know, I didn't, you know, nobody wants to kind of step in. Um, luckily, I didn't have to do any um, networking to get it. So, it, you know, it just kind of fell at me, which was uh, like in insane. I still remember <laughs> that. I still remember the day. Two two things. I remember when they called me for Clockwork Angels. Um, first of all, I thought it was kind of a joke because I was like, yeah, you guys don't know anything about Rush. Rush is a trio and that's it. Right. Are you kind of making this, is it going to be like one of those tribute to Rush music? And we're going <laughs> to like a Muzak thing. Well, you know, like, you know, I have to lose 40 pounds and, and wear some kind of weird outfit and play Rush, <laughs> you know, play Devin in front, whatever. I was like, fuck, that's, this is kind of crap. And then I, then I was like, you know, this was going on in my head. And I was like, oh, these people don't know Rush very well. And then as soon as it kind of, you know, came together, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be out of this world. Mm. And you think, though, as a fan, you might think for a second, wait, this sounds exactly like something Rush would do. <laughs> <laughs> what am I thinking? Of course, they're going to do something like this. I want to be a part of this. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Now you played on the album, correct? Before before you went on tour with Rush, right? I didn't play on Clockwork. Oh, you didn't? Okay. No, no, that's in LA. That's that's the cool thing. I mean, we um I know you guys don't have video, but Oh wow, look at that. So this was this wonderful gift and which is on my wall of the Clockwork Angels record certified yeah. uh in Canada. Um, but they gave it to uh, the tour people as well. And I think actually, if I'm not mistaken, only two of the people who were on the 
tour around the record. And it was a group of, it was an LA based recording. And so Encho and I were not on the record, but we, you know, Rush being who they are and how, you know, thoughtful and wonderful they are. They, they put together a bunch of these for, for us. So did you rehearse as a string section before you rehearsed with Getty, Alex and Neil, or was it everybody together? Yes. We rehearsed with David Campbell. We got the charts and we sat in the Mississauga. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but like a hockey stadium. And we went in the, the other room and rehearsed with David Campbell, the charts. And, you know, it was a, a, couple hours of that as i recall and then you know within a day or two we were staying at a local hotel and then the next day we were vanned over there and there they were and we started rehearsing the the platform was there and that's when i you know made sure my diaper was (laughs) well hinged and you know i i worked out my uh my dialogue you know on paper right hello getty (laughs) I tell you that I since uh, you know whatever. You like you had to write it down phonetically, right? So you wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Phonetically, like hello, Geddy. My palm. Make a special note that it's Peart. Oh yeah, Peart. Oh, (laughs) hello, Mister Park. Oh no, you know, armpit sweating, but the kind of cool funny later for like deep rush fans you know paul rudd paul rudd is a buddy of mine so the weird thing is we've known each other you know about 15 years or more and um from new york and he did the thing you know a year or two before with them or a couple years with the film and he and i were friends then i got the call and i i called him i said paul rush and and he said oh god i gotta you know i gotta email them so luckily for me there was a little um nerve breaker there and Mm. they they kind of are you are you paul's friend you know so right kind of already had a little in you know right not that though not and by the way not that they're the kind of fellas to to be like uh you're talking to me you know i mean (laughs) from the split second we showed up they were like you know, we were colleagues and working on the same thing and let's get it done and blah, blah, blah. And very, just really, really accommodating and perfect and all the stuff that you would expect. Now, I'm not a musician, so I don't know exactly how this whole thing works, but you go into this hockey stadium room with the charts. What kind of sense do you have of the, in, the song entire? Or do you only have like your parts? Like how, like you're, you're, practicing but like you're like oh this song sounds amazing in its entirety well, well um the thing is i wasn't familiar with the clockwork angels record so right that was a big mistake on my part but no it was more like i'm gonna you know buckle down and play these damn notes in the right place <laughs> at the right time you know like right. just, you know it was like if i started freaking out about or thinking too much about any of that it would have you know it was like, okay, I'm in a, I'm on a gig now. So mm-hmm. we got to we'll listen to David Campbell. He's our point man. He's the arranger, exceptional arrangements. I've worked with him before many times. And so it's like, now you're basically on the gig. You don't really get a sense of what's happening otherwise. And then you go into the rehearsal with the band and you start getting the real sense of what's happening. 
What about the songs that were not on Clockwork Angels that you performed live? Did you guys rehearse other songs other than Manhattan Project and Red Sector A, the ones you did play? Oh, yeah. Or were those set from the beginning? No, you know, they kind of, they, again, as I recall, they, as things developed, they kind of added a tune here or a tune there, like YYZ. There was an arrangement being thrown around for that. You know, it was kind of as it was unfolding, things showed up, new charts would show up and blah, blah, blah. But they had a, you know, they had two different nights. One was the A night and the B night, or I forget how they call it, but, Mm -hmm. you know, you would, you would switch off songs. It was like two Mm -hmm. different sets. Red Sector A was replaced by, I, I don't recall exactly, but no, those were pretty much set in, in, in our early rehearsals, but then, the arrangement for YYZ was added, and then um, what else was something else? Manhattan Project. Yeah, it kind of evolved. They were like, "Oh, this is working. This would be cool," which was which was which was exciting, you know. Yeah. Every once in a while, in in uh, in those rehearsals, did you throw in a little bit of like uh, <laughs> throw in a little Xanadu and be like, huh? <laughs> "How about this, guys?" And you throw that in there. I, I was so. Like I didn't want to nerd out at all, yeah. Even though I was like, I could like in sound check. Sound check's the worst because they're so friendly and you're right there, and you know it's like I just wanted to play their tunes for them, right? You know, and it's like, but that's that's like the whole like. Luckily, I was old. Enough, if if I got this gig in my twenties, I probably would have been fired. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I would. You know, I would have been like, I would can I get 8 million pictures and can I, you know, like, can I play this for you? And can we record, can I be in the band? You know, like whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah. luckily I was old enough to be, you know, right. To be cool enough, by the way, not cool at all, but cool enough to, you know, do the job as I was hired to do. So that yeah. was, <laughs> that was to my benefit. They know how much I love them. I mean, like I'm, 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 you know, we still keep in touch and, and they know. They know. I, I picture them rolling their eyes together, like Getty and Al. Like every time I send them an email, I picture them like, ah, you get email. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's a good thing you didn't show up with like a knapsack full of like tapestries, like rush tapestries oh, for them to sell oh to sign. They, if only they knew how much I knew. <laughs> oh, I'm glad they don't. Well, now, well, now they do. <laughs> Were there songs, Johnny, that you guys rehearsed that just didn't work and you decided not to do, or did that not happen? Man, I gotta say, I think there was maybe one or two songs that they scrapped, but I'm not necessarily sure that it was because it didn't work with strings or whatever. I think they were, you know, like with every one of these giant tour processes, you know, they're kind of figuring out which songs to, you know, like they, I, you know, at that at that level, you were kind of record the whole set once you got it, and then you kind of—I'm sure there's a a lot of decision making just based on on the set, you know, trajectory. Anyway, so I'm not sure. I I don't think there was anything that kind of we played and they were like, "Ew." I mean, there might have been. We've never <laughs> known about it, which is the greatest thing, you know. Yeah, I can't imagine they were sitting around going, "Oof, that was terrible." <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> yeah, yeah. That Johnny guy. Oh, oh those <laughs> rings! Can we please mute them? 
So what about the first show of the tour, Johnny? How did that compare to opening night of a Broadway show? What's, what's the comparison there? I mean, there's two different, for me, there's two different versions of that opening. The, the one of the Clockwork Angels where I was able to be in the moment and be totally, absolutely covered in chills and excited. And we had rehearsed enough, so it was, you know, kind of set. So it was, it was very, very enjoyable, top level. Um, for playing Losing It with them, I don't remember the first night at all because I was so nervous and I, I couldn't, you know, it was so important to play well, so I couldn't be medicated. I couldn't have a, even a glass of wine. I just, I needed to do it so that I went into a very strange place. It was like a very... I had to do a lot of meditation and because there was a lot to, so that I don't remember. Luckily by the third time I did it with them in Los Angeles, I was a hundred percent in the moment. So I, I just remember that as possibly being one of the best um, moments of my life. Yeah. Steve and I saw you do that twice on that tour back to back in Newark and Where's the other one, Steve? Madison yeah. Square Garden. Madison yeah. Square Garden. And they were, I, I'm waving my hand, top notch. I can't even, it was, un, hearing that song, first of all, when we heard they were going to play that song sometimes, oh. I, I almost died. And then when they played it the first night, uh, again, I, I might have died. So t- you, you were a huge, yeah, I almost died, right? You were like, <laughs> so you were, as a Rush fan, probably, the only Rush song that I know of that has a violin on it, losing yeah. it. So that came out in 82. So how old are you? You're already playing the violin Steve. and the song comes on. What do you, what's little Johnny Dinklage doing when this song comes on? Well, I, you go, you go completely insane because at that point I was already, now I'm totally deep. It's already after moving pictures. It's our spirit of it. You know, like all this, everything had already happened. So now you're a full blown Rush fan. And then they hit you with, and I had gotten into electric violin at that point. I was into a band. Oh. I was into Jean-Luc Ponty and, and I was into a band called UK with this guy, Eddie Jobson, who was a, a great crossover, incredible keyboard player and electric violinist. So I was, I was already learning a lot of these rock violin things. And then Rush shows up with a rock violin solo. So I actually told them, the story, I don't know if I told all of them, but I certainly told Alex that, you know, like the, the day it came out, I, I, you know, initially when I heard that solo, you don't know because Alex is such a fluid guitar player. Mm. There's such a legato sensibility in his solos and he, he's so crazy with his approach to guitar and Ben Mink's sound was so unique that it was hard to kind of decipher if it was actually violin and then there were a couple tell tell moments like that i was like oh my god the violin so i basically learned that that solo i learned it note for note with all the slides and the and the and the delay i timed the delay i had a little delay pedal i had like this creepy white electric violin you know and i had my mullet and, and you know and, but I had this little PVM and I, I nailed the solo like in, when I was 16. And then I was like, when, when Alex called me and reached out that they were considering doing it, I was like, 
I have to play it as well as I did when I was 16. Because mm. that's how much I, that's how deeply I knew that solo. I mean, it was so emotional, so moving. I mean, how do you get up on stage and do that and, and not lose it yourself? No idea. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, yeah. You're, you, I had all my friends in Newark. You guys were there. Yeah. I had all, like, I'm from Jersey. So, like, I had my friends, I had college guys, and Rush was so cool about obviously, like, letting me have a bunch of tickets and management. So I was like, oh, this is going to be incredible. Got all my buddies and guys I played in bar bands with and all this. Then I something happened. I went into a like a like a. I, I don't want to be so pretentious, but it was it was on another level because the whole the whole the decades had hit me at once, and but also mostly it was emotional because of my love for them. And now that I knew them, I really had to do it, and so. Strangely, I wasn't, I was so nervous that I, I, um, I don't remember it, but something happened where I was like, this, this just has to happen. You know, there's just too much invested in this and I can't fuck it up. And, and it was, and they're so great. You know, you walk out on stage, but you know, you're at the, in a stadium, but luckily in the stadium, you can only see 20, 30 rows and the way that, you know, Neil smiled at me and it's, there's, it's just, it was like, oh, shit, okay, this is a, this is a cool little gig. I, I, it's hard to explain. I, I hope I'm doing okay explaining it. Oh, absolutely. Now, what about the last show, Johnny? The LA show? Yeah. Oh, that was everything. That was the greatest night because I was able to like I said before, be in the moment and kind of jam and feel it and know what I was playing. And, and uh, you know, I knew it was the last. I mean, none of us knew it would be the last last. Right. Um, but it felt for me like the last last. And I definitely thought to myself, this is kind of a secret moment, but Neil had a ticket, a first class ticket that he didn't use that they gave to me. So I was it I was sitting in, in Neil's seat. And uh I just it was this was before anybody knew anything, but I I knew that Rush was semi-retired and I had done what I was supposed to do and I loved them since I was a kid and I sat in this seat on the plane and flying and flew home to New York and it was uh it's hard to describe it was like the greatest moment of my life again other than the birth of my tiny little daughter <laughs> you know it was it's uh I don't know, Rush fans. It's it's too much. Anyway, I'm sorry to be so. De no, de no, no. It's fine. It's fine. Not at all. I'm a you know I'm a crier, guys. I'm a crier, <laughs> man. <laughs> I was gonna say, you know, since we started doing this um, podcast, uh, we've heard stories like yours from people who are just listening to the music. 
Yeah. People who've entire lives have changed on, on the fulcrum of a single song. And, you know, here you are telling a story about playing that song. So don't apologize for anything. I'm getting goosebumps just listening to you talk about it. Yeah, man. It's the, it, and okay. I played with rush, but it's the same. It's the same love. It's the same feeling. It's the same importance. And, uh, uh, it really is like a band like that just can't it's a it's a full-blown once-in-a-lifetime thing and there's a yeah. lot of you know there's a i love so much music and you know like freddie mercury queen I, I mean there's just so much that i love but they're it's so weird that there really isn't anything like rush <laughs> right yeah certainly there's nothing like freddie mercury okay fine but there's you know and there's nothing like john bonham there's nothing like you know jimmy hendrix there's not but there's nothing like the band Rush. Right. I think it has to do again with 19 studio albums. That's right. With, you know, starting out hard rock, going to progressive total wackiness to keyboards to, I mean, yeah. just all over the map and yet still being at the core, the same kind of band. And I got, how about this? How about being in your 60s or 60 and playing for three hours and playing better and more consistently than ever before, possibly? How about that? Yeah. You know, how about your last studio album being yeah. top 10? If not for me now, I mean, obviously, for top five. Ones, but like, I don't listen to to that record now like i played it i listen to that record like holy crap the garden give me a yeah, break i know like you know you can't how about writing a song like that at the <laughs> end of your i mean you gotta be kidding i me. know i know right uh, it's dumb it's dumb they're dumb <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's really impossible when you listen i mean i say this all the time and not being a musician it's it, the idea is foreign to me to begin with yeah of, of writing a great song but writing a song like The Garden in your early 60s that somehow wraps up an album and its themes, but could also wrap up your entire musical career and entire life. The simplicity and the foreshadowing, just, you know, Neil's crazy, in-depth, complicated, Anne Rind, you know, I don't know how to pronounce her name, all the lyrics, all the influences, and then to write a lyric like that. Yeah. It, it, I mean, talk about a chest wallop. Yeah. That is, a, that's a, that's a sucker punch. And yeah. it's, it's truly one of the most beautiful songs top to bottom. And so that's, that's another aspect to them that just. So what about the, the other members of the string ensemble, Jonathan, do you share a common bond with them now? That's going to last forever. You keep in touch with them. Definitely. Adele, the cellist, has moved to New York, and she and I are very good buddies, and she's made a career here, and we work together all the time, and she's a great pal of mine, which I'm, I'm really happy she moved to New York. I thought she should. And Cho is my neighbor, so we are, we see each other every couple of days, and we carry those memories with us. The other members of the group 
I don't because they're, you know, Los Angeles and New York is split. Um, we're in touch. There's some emails and, you know, but we weren't close to begin with beforehand. We have a lot of memories, but I know Audrey has a beautiful family now and, and I know everybody's doing well. I'm not on social media, but I hear that everybody's doing well. So, but Ancho and Adele, yeah, we're very close. What would you say you learned on, on tour with Rush, Johnny, that you, you take with you for the rest of your career? Honesty. Honesty. I mean, there's no way to answer that without sounding corny, but they epitomize, the guys in Rush epitomize the ability to have a long, full, bright career by doing truly only what you feel happy doing they yeah of course they have to play limelight every single concert and they have to play tom sawyer every single con and then, you know, but that's part of the job but the the honesty and the friendship is the most important thing i i took away i kind of had a sense of that beforehand but then it was you know set in stone after getting to know them you know the way they deal with each other the way the the kind of friendship and respect and this stuff is all on video and it's captured here and there but it's really i have to tell you all this all the backstage stuff all the crew the way they treat treat the crew the way just the way everything feels on that tour is the reason why they and i think it's all based on r real honesty well you can tell that Rush treats everyone in their crew and in their band as their members of the family. Absolutely. I mean, there's no way those tours are so gigantic and so complex that, you know, you got to weed out. That's why they're so that, that I would assume that as the bigger things get, the tighter the bond has to be among the people you work with, you know, because the peripheral can get out of control very quickly. So I think that that's what they've always been able to. And I would, that's a testament to Getty and well, it's a testament to all of them, but they, they, they um, on the business side of things, I think that you keep your loyalties without really expecting to, you know, let people be who they are, but be really loyal. And you're going to, it's going to be, it's, everything's always going to be better. It's like an old friend. You can't lie to an old friend. It's really, you know, COVID has made me really wordy. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so do you keep in touch with Alex and Getty, Johnny, at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I send emails, and they're always quick to respond. It's really great. Oh, yeah, we, 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 we've been in touch quite a bit, thankfully. So what's next for you, Johnny? Is it back with Hamilton once Broadway opens again? Yeah, I mean, we don't have word yet. Obviously, that's a difficult thing to put together. You know, the whole Broadway scene is kind of still up in the air. But Hamilton is ready to rock and roll again, and they will, and it, it will, and I'll go right back in. I'm doing a lot of studio stuff at home, which is great. I do a lot of string recording here at home and arrangements and stuff, so that's keeping me busy, thankfully. 
And ultimately that's kind of what I've always wanted to do anyway. So yeah, Hamilton and then uh, raising a baby. (laughs) Well, congratulations again on that. And Johnny, thanks so much for joining us today. Your stories were fantastic. And I know all Rush fans appreciate the work you did with the band. Thank you so much. Thank you. I I really appreciate it. It's great to see you guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. So Jerry mentioned that we wanted to have Johnny Dinklage on for a long time, and it was so worth the wait. Oh, it totally was. It totally was. He's great to talk to. I knew it was going to be a great interview when I was emailing back and forth with him. He had a great sense of humor in the emails. Yeah, and that's why he gets along with Rush so well, because he has a great sense of humor. They have a great sense of humor, and he's a talented musician, extremely talented. Yeah, and it's nice to see a real like Rush fan who is unabashed about his Rush fandom even in front of the band, but can still hold it together. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like he was on tour with them and he was treated like an equal because of his musicianship and wasn't just like some, some geeky fanboy. Yeah. You know, I wonder if he acted like that in front of Neil and how that went over. We should have asked him that. Oh, we should have asked. We'll have to have him back. We'll have to have him back. You know what we should do? We should have a bunch of former guests on and ask him the one question we forgot to ask. That's a great idea. The entire episode. (laughs) entire episode of one question. It's like, welcome back, Jonathan Dinklage. (laughs) Or our listeners could email us and say, hey, here's a question you could ask so-and-so. Maybe we can have our listeners give us the questions we forgot to ask. Oh, that's a great idea. You can email us at therushcast.gmail.com. Title the email, questions you forgot to ask, and Mm. fire away. Yeah, I like that idea. Another thing we forgot to talk about is David Campbell, who we mentioned, who was the conductor of the Clockwork Angel String Ensemble, is Beck's father. I know, Beck's father. How crazy is that? I know. That's, I mean, Beck is a, a musical genius, if you ask me, right? That dude can do anything. Yeah. So I guess it's no, no wonder that his father is you know, a conductor and a you know, musician himself. Yeah, it's amazing. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, you can find us at The Rushcast. Email Jerry, as I said, the email is therushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro was done by Lex. He's amazing, as always. And Jerry, I hope you have a great quote for me to wrap this one up. Of course I do, Steve. Of course you do. Of course I do. I'm going to leave this long pause in. (laughs) No, no, don't. Yes, I'm doing it. I'm leaving it in. The pause is staying. The window closed on me. The window closed on me. So since uh, Johnny's, one of Johnny's favorite songs is Losing It, and he played Losing It, let's do this, okay? Okay. For you, the blind who once could see, the bell tolls for thee. The bell tolls for thee. I'm getting choked up already, Jer. Yeah, I know. Thanks, bud. All right, see ya. Thank you.